Well, I wish you all a very good morning, wherever you happen to be watching our service online today. It's kind of a surreal experience here to be speaking to a whole host of empty chairs. But I know that you are at home and that you're watching. I am really appreciative of the ability of this church to roll with the punches, so to speak. And while I suspect more punches are still coming, we will, uh, we will persevere through those. So thank you for your love and your support and your encouragement. So this morning, I'm going to continue to follow the story of Moses. The last time that I had the opportunity to preach and we talked about the life of Moses, we were looking at the crossing of the Red Sea. And if you remember, I showed a fairly lengthy clip from the movie, The Ten Commandments, that was one person's way of trying to understand what that might have looked like. So we left the people of Israel standing on the shore. They were singing. They were dancing. They were celebrating the defeat of the Egyptian army who had drowned in the very ocean that they had walked through as they tried to follow and the waters that had been piled up on each side like a wall suddenly came over them and covered them and they were, they were drowned. So that's where we left them. You remember we started this, I guess I'll call it a series about Moses when we looked at his call when he was encountered by a bush that was burning and yet not consumed. And he was told to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. And I asked you if you would take off your shoes. And of course, some of you said, oh, sure. And some of you very politely, quietly, in your head said, no. Then we looked at how Moses came back, convinced the people that he had been called by God, and then he began the process of asking Pharaoh to let him go, to let his people go. And Pharaoh refused, and then there were judgments on Egypt. Then we looked at what it would be like to suddenly just pick up everything and leave and go. And I kind of characterized that by saying, what would it be like if you came to church and you were greeted with the announcement that the entire church was going to walk down to Hagen's and back. Once again, some of you were like, wow, that would be interesting. But I would suspect that most of you were like, no, would not be interested in doing that. You can't make me. Well, this next chapter that we're going to be looking at, the, the last part of chapter 15 of Exodus, we're going to encounter people that are characterized by complaints. They're not very happy when they encounter trouble and they begin to complain and it starts with grumbling and murmuring and it continues until there is outright accusation of Moses that he purposely brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So I'm going to have us read Exodus 15 
verses 22 through 26. So, for those of you that are just getting familiar with your Bible, Exodus is the second book in from the very beginning. So you have Genesis, then Exodus. And so we're starting at chapter 15, verses 22 through 26. And I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Before we continue further, let me just say a brief word of prayer. Father, we ask that we learn today from the scriptures. That's what we long to do, to hear from you. And I know that you will apply it to each one of us individually. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of a monastery at least 500 years ago. And it was the policy of this monastery for the monks to not speak. Total silence. However, they also allowed the monks two words every five years. So on the appointed day for their first two words of speech, one of the monks approached the abbot. He was relatively new to the community and this was his first opportunity to speak. He sat down and then he said, bed hard. And then he ambled off. Another five years pass, and the day for the two words of speech arrive again. The same monk comes and sits before the abbot. He sits down a little stiffly, and then he said, food bad. And once again, he ambled off. Five more years pass. The day of speech arrives once again. Here he comes again sits down before the abbot. Always cold, he said, and then shuffled off. Well, 20 years have now gone by, and the day for two-word speech arrives one more time. The abbot receives our monk, who hunkers down before the abbot and says, I quit. The abbot cannot contain himself and violating his own two-word two-word rule, he says, it's a good thing, too, because all you've done is complain since you got here. 
Now, one of the questions that I have running around in my brain is this. What was it that turned the people of Israel into complainers? Did they always behave that way? Would I have been any different? The last we saw, they were dancing and celebrating and singing in victory over the the death of the Egyptians. There was an Exodus commentary that I read that implied that Moses had to command them to leave the sea and that celebration. And that commentary even went so far as to suggest that it may be that the people were contemplating returning back to Egypt and maybe taking over since the Egyptian army was now gone. But Moses ended up telling them, we've got to go. And so led them and they began to walk into the wilderness. Now I'd like to read from a, por- a portion from a book called Walking the Bible, A Journey by Land Through the Five Books of Moses. The author of this book is named Bruce Filer. He's an American, a writer. He has written a number of books that have been on the New York Times bestseller list. And this is some of what he had to say about his experience in the wilderness because his plan in this book was to follow the path of the first five books of the, of the Old Testament and actually walk and trod where those stories occurred. So this is what he has to say about the wilderness. Light. The first thing you notice about the desert is the light. It's a white light, bleached across the horizon, that bounces off the blue helmet of sky, picks up the glint of quartz in the sand, and washes out everything in its sight. The desert may be defined by an absence of rain, but a watercolor painting of the place would have far more water than color. The second thing you notice about the desert is the space. The panorama is almost overwhelming, with sand blowing across the ground, bushes bent against the wind, and everywhere rocks, mesas, dunes, and mountains. Montana may be the big sky country, but the Sinai is big land country. One almost needs wide-angle vision to take it all in, and even that's not enough. Stand facing the Sinai from the Suez Canal as I did in early spring, having returned to begin the next leg of our trip, retracing the exodus through what the Bible calls that great and terrible wilderness. And two eyes are not enough to take in the scene. Two arms are not enough to embrace it. The Sinai would diminish any crowd. The last thing you notice about the desert is the noise. In preparing for this part of our journey, I steeled myself for the silence. The desert would surely feel isolated, an island of seclusion. But once I stepped into the open terrain, I was amazed by the din, the wind whining through the mountains, the sand tinkling against your face, the rocks crunching beneath your feet. As Jim Crace wrote in Quarantine, a retelling of Jesus' stay in the desert, 
No wild land is ever truly silent. Earth collapses with the engineering of the ants. Lizards smack the pebbles with their tails. The sun fires seeds in salvos from their pods. Pigeons misconnect with dry branches. And stones, left to their own devices, can find the muscle to descend the hill. The desert may be empty, but it's the least quiet place I've ever been. And the most alluring. So it was into that kind of environment that Moses led the people. Many of the commentaries stated that a crowd this large, hauling tents and herding flocks, would likely be able to traverse about 15 miles in a day. The time of year that this would have been occurring has been calculated to be April. Later, in this same chapter of the book that I quoted from, from Filer, he also indicates, I was shocked to discover on that first evening, for example, that the biggest problem in the desert is not heat, which I naively expected, but cold. That's why desert goats are black and Bedouin tents, even beetles. Black absorbs heat. You can escape the sun, all you need is shade, but you can't escape the cold. I may have felt attached to the desert, but I was still far from feeling at home. I sometimes think that we have too little sympathy for the people of Israel as they wander, as they begin this long trek. We view them as whiners and complainers and maybe even weak. But I wonder how we would do on a forced march of 15 miles a day, carrying all our belongings and our food and our tent and herding animals to boot. But perhaps it was that journey that started them down the path of being a group of grumbling walkers in stone and sand. This last Friday, our power went out at my house about two o'clock. And for the next seven hours, I was forced to cope with no lights, no devices, no internet. I know, the suffering. I have to say, I was very relieved when the power came back on so that life could go back to normal. That didn't happen for the people of Israel. Life did not go back to normal. You see, God was taking his people away from slavery in Egypt. He was forging them into a new nation, a new people, giving them a new way of thinking about God. He was going to reveal himself to them. One God, all-powerful, the gods that they had left in Egypt were characterized as powerful, fearful, frightening even. This God, one God, began to reveal himself as not only powerful as demonstrated by his ability to part the sea, but this one God was going to be revealing himself as holy. And that was something completely out of their reckoning. 
They had no idea what that meant, and it was going to take some time to teach them. They had been acquainted with life in Egypt. They knew that well. They had a lot to learn, and lessons are sometimes painful. So you can imagine, after three days, when they finally catch sight of an oasis, there was probably great relief. And maybe even the first ones that saw the oasis bolted forward. Water, finally. And then, of course, the first person tasted it and spit it out because it was bitter. And bitter was their disappointment. Their expectations of water for all now were dashed. And that's when the grumbling began. What shall we drink? Is what they asked Moses. Now there must have been some kind of menace in those words. Of course, can you imagine standing before a bitter oasis and now you have however many people you think that were there in the exodus standing in front of you unhappy that the water is not fit to drink. So certainly we can see that there was an overtone of anger, disappointment, and menace. And Moses' response was to cry out to God. That's a really nice way of saying he prayed. It was just really loud and had a hint of desperation. (coughs) Excuse me. Now the text says that God showed him a log or tree and he picked it up and threw it into the spring and the water became sweet. Now it doesn't mean that it was sugary, it just means that it was now fit to drink. Now surely this was another miracle and the text immediately states that he made for them there a statute and a regulation promising that if they listened to the voice of God and did what was right in his sight and gave ear, listening again, to his commandments, then he would put none of the diseases on them that he had put on the Egyptians. And the reason was, I, the Lord, am your healer. He had just healed the waters, which were bitter. They were bitter enough that the the name of the place was bitter. And I imagine that that provided an opportunity for a clear lesson about the nature of God that they needed to learn. And that first lesson was listen and then act on what you hear. That word Mara, as I said, means bitter. But I'm thinking, doesn't bitterness, bitter experiences, bad things happening come to us in our lives. And often, it seems right after we've had a high point, a really great moment, not very long afterwards, that bitter place comes to be a part of our life. In the book of Ruth, we encounter a woman named Naomi. It's interesting that her name, Naomi, means pleasant. She had a husband and two sons and they moved to a nearby country and there her sons married but her husband passed away 
and shortly after that, her sons passed away. And she resolved to go back to Israel to be with her people. Now, I'm not talking, I'm going to preach on the book of Ruth, so I'm just recounting this part of the story. When she gets back, she is welcomed, and people are glad to see her. But what once was pleasant, Naomi, now likely in tears, asks them to call her Mara, because the Lord had dealt bitterly She had gone out full. She came back empty. If you have not yet come to a place in your life that you call Mara, most assuredly, you will. Everyone does. Jesus put it very succinctly when he said in John 16, 33, in this life you will have trouble. Maybe for you, the trouble looks like this. Maybe you've lost a spouse or a child. Maybe you've encountered a major change in your work life that puts so many different things in doubt and raises your stress to almost unbearable levels. Maybe you've received a grim medical diagnosis. Or maybe that diagnosis has been made for someone you love. Maybe you find yourself in a protracted battle with an addiction that threatens everything you hold dear. This is what I mean by Mara, bitterness, life in the trenches. And it is often just what we are describing, bitter, unpleasant, and defeating. Now, we've been taught by our culture to seek out scientific reasons for these problems. So perhaps your health is because you have poor eating habits or maybe somehow through your work you were exposed to a carcinogen. Maybe it was accidental, maybe it wasn't. Maybe you have genetic or inherited tendencies. And as a result, we have a lot of books and podcasts and sometimes even sermons that urge us to avoid these pitfalls. And usually that sermon or that book or that podcast is entitled, How to This and How to That. Have you ever been in the middle of a Mara moment and had someone recommend to you a how-to book? Have you ever been in the middle of a Mara moment and had someone come and recommend a spiritual remedy to your problem that involves more prayer, more reading your Bible, more praising, more fasting, more this, more that? The very nature of our Mara moments is that they cut us off from other people because our culture has also taught us that we need to handle these moments alone, quiet suffering, not wanting to bother others with our feelings is what we seem to admire. And in some ways, we even seem to expect it. But how many of you have lost a spouse or a loved one and after just a couple of weeks, people don't even remember that you had a loss? 
How many of you have learned that it's just better to keep your grief to yourself, not let anyone else in because that means more pain? How many in the midst of that, that uh, addiction battle feel abandoned and alone? How many of you are facing a life-threatening illness but have friends that won't talk to you because they don't know what to say? This is the power of the Mara moment that I'm talking about. Now, I'm not going to give in to the desire to tell you three steps to become a happy Christian. And yet, if we don't find hope and life in the scriptures, where else will we find it? So note first that when threatened by this grumbling crowd, Moses cries out to God. Now, it's not a fancy prayer fit for framing. It's not a highly stylized prayer that would awe theological students everywhere. It's not even a memorized, now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer. He cried out. You see, God can hear you through your tears. He can hear you in your halting, anguished breaths because God hears. Jesus demonstrated this for us when he was in the garden and he prayed until great drops of blood came from his forehead. And he prayed and cried out, please, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Paul showed it to us when on his way to Jerusalem, he was told, if you go to Jerusalem, you're never coming back. And he met with the Ephesian elders on the way to Jerusalem, and they were imploring him not to go. And they had time together where they prayed and they were weeping. It's that crying out of your soul to God. Even if you don't use words, even if the words are buried within your emotion, God will hear. And that promise that I, the Lord, am your healer gains new strength. That same powerful God who could part the waters of the Red Sea, powerful God who made bitter water sweet, the one who made the world and all it contains, he is our healer. Now please don't hear in that a promise that everything will work out and turn out exactly like you want it to. That's not what it says. It is a promise that the powerful God cares about you and me. He is the one to whom we turn and we can trust him even when we can't see him. So there are some things that you can do now before the Mara moment arrives in your life. Or perhaps you're in between. You've just left a moment that you would consider bitter and now life is getting a little bit better. So I'm going to make some recommendations of things that you can do now to be prepared for those moments. The first thing is build strong relationships with your fellow believers. We've been placed in the body 
the body of Christ. And each one of us is important to the health of the other. I'm sure you've heard lots of sermons and lessons about that, but we don't want to lose sight of how important that will be when the storm comes because we need each other and we can each be a tremendous source of grace and strength for one another. Now when you encounter this kind of situation, Satan will try to cut you off. He will try to convince you that no one really cares and that you're really not worth spending the time it takes to get to know. He will try to get you to slowly start avoiding times when you can be together with people and he will get you by yourself. So don't let that happen. Work on building strong relationships with people in the church. The second thing that I'm making as a recommendation, and I want you to see this as kind of a winterize your house kind of suggestions or how, you know, those kinds of things, not the how to, to get out of it, but maybe things you can do to prepare yourself for it because we will all encounter those. The second thing would be learn scripture. Read scripture. Listen to scripture. Make it a part of you. Now, however that looks for you, prioritize it. The word of God will be for you a source of strength. And even in the midst of sorrow, it will be a source of joy. You can't start doing that in the midst of the storm. You have to be prepared. There's nothing magical about that either. There's no secret that needs to be shared. It is just plain work. But it will save you much when you need it most. So however you immerse yourself in Scripture, whether you listen to it on the, on the radio or on the computer, whether you read it, whether you have other people read it to you, do what you can to get that Scripture part of your everyday experience. Another way would be to start to give. Giving of yourself. Giving of your knowledge. Giving your money. Giving your time. Developing the ability to look for needs and try to figure out how you can be a part of solving them. Because what we have discovered in life is that only those who give freely really know how to truly receive. An example of that, that you've probably heard of in sermons before, is a body of water that only receives, eventually stagnates. But a body of water that receives and has an outlet stays fresh and stays refreshing. Those of you that are younger, I think it would be great if you would pick out an older Christian that you feel you can relate to and ask them about their Mara moments. You may have to prod, you might have to poke, figuratively, of course, but I want you to listen as they recount how God was with them as they walked in the midst of bitterness. Those of you that are older, don't wait. Don't wait for someone younger to come and ask. 
find someone or some way to share your experience with a teenager or a younger adult who really needs it. They may be too shy or even scared of you. After all, older adults can be scary. But that doesn't mean that they don't need to hear from you. Overall, and through all, I want us to remember this promise from our healer. It's in Revelation, chapter 21, verses 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That is a promise for us today. So when you come to that moment of Mara in your life, turn to God, your healer, and he, he will comfort you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, our healer, our Lord, our God, the one who hears all that we have to say or think, we turn to you now. Some of us are in the midst of the storm. Others can see the storm coming. Others have just come out of one and others have not encountered one yet. But Lord, you've placed us into your body so that we can stand together, that we can be strengthened together, and that we, as your people, can hear your words and do them. May it be so in our hearts, may it be so in our church, and may it be so in our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.